Well, good morning again. Um, you might have noticed the dumpster out in the front lawn. Anybody notice that? No? Okay, good. Um, no, it's, uh, it's there. So, cool news. This, uh, actually this week, tomorrow, we've got a team of carpenters coming up from Cary, our sending church, uh, back where I used to be a college pastor, and they are going to gut that whole area up there that you don't even know exists, and we're going to create some more space for more seats. Isn't that amazing? Um, so that's what the dumpster's there for. It's going to be a busy week. It's going to be chaos, and we're going to try to finish it in a week. Five days. We'll, we'll see. Pray. Um, if you have your Bibles, hopefully you're already in Acts chapter 5. Uh, in 1833, the Russian author Alexander Pushkin wrote the legendary classic called Eugene uh, Onegin. And in the novel, Eugene Onegin is, is kind of a dandy. He's an aristocrat. He's a playboy. Uh, he does whatever he wants. He lives for the party. Uh, basically, his entire life is just going to balls and dances and, and feasts and concerts. And at one point in the story, his uncle dies, and his uncle uh, leaves him an inheritance. And this inheritance involves a ton of money, and it also involves an estate out in the country. And so Onegin goes out to the country, and while he's there, he's living for the party. And at one of those parties, he just so happens to meet a young girl from the countryside, innocent and naive and romantic, Tatiana. And Tatiana is immediately drawn to Onegin. And she writes him a letter where she professes her love to him and she offers her hand in marriage and she's hoping that he will reciprocate it because they have this relationship that's been developed. But to her shock and to her horror, he doesn't even reply. It's just silence. Later on, they bump into each other at a dinner, a party, I can't remember, and Onegin gives her this legendary speech. It's actually called Onegin's um, sermon, where he tells her that he was flattered by her love, and then condescendingly tells her that she needs to guard her emotions better, or somebody's going to take advantage of her. And then he says, I can't take you up on your offer, because I'm convinced that a life with you and a life in marriage would be a life of boredom. And so he essentially pats her on the head and goes on with his life. Now, years later, he's at a party in St. Petersburg and he's hanging out with all the elite and all the aristocrats and all of a sudden he sees the most beautiful and the most stunning woman that he has ever seen in his entire life. And to his horror and to his shock, he realizes it's Tatiana. And so he goes up to Tatiana and he tries to win her back and he tries to <laughs> express her beauty in ways that like, would make her want to be with him again. But to his horror again, it was too late because at that point in time, she was already married. The door of her love once open was now shut forever. And as the story goes, Onegin ends his life in misery and regret. Now in her book, Questioning Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin applies this tragedy to our own lives, and she puts it like this. For many of us, it's easy to reject Jesus now. Like Tatiana's letter to Onegin, his offer is touching, flattering. But we, we believe that we will be happier without such a commitment. And we worry he will cramp our style, so we move on with life and leave him in the spiritual countryside. One day, though, the Bible warns, we will see Jesus 
in all his glory. Our eyes painfully open to his majesty. We will know in that moment that all our greatest treasures were nothing compared with him. And we will bitterly regret that decision. Let's be honest. There are so many reasons not to accept Christ's offer here and now, right? Maybe for some of you, it's the way he demands that we be generous with our money. I mean, that's so un-American. It's style cramping at best. It is life altering at worst. And when he says things like you shouldn't spend money just on yourself, but you should invest in the kingdom. And when he says you shouldn't just go after possessions and pleasure, but you should invest in the progress of the gospel and people that will last forever. We're a lot, a lot of, more often than not, we're like that rich young ruler who hears the message, who believes the message, but then is like, that's too much to ask. And we go away sad. No thanks. Life with Jesus at the wheel seems like an incredible boredom. Or for some of you, it might be the way that he talks about marriage, the way that he defines marriage, and then the way that he confines sex to marriage. That's so not South End. That is so like 200 years ago. Talk about getting in our way. Talk about cramping our style. Talk about, talk about ruining our fun, right? So again, so we don't look like antiquated fools in our modern society. We read his letter, and we put it on the shelf, and we move on. For some of you, it's the way he calls us to the cross. This was me for most of my life before Jesus. The way that I knew he was going to call me to suffer for his name and call me to risk my life so that his gospel could go to people who've never heard it before. All I wanted was to live a quiet life and a comfortable life and an easy life. And Jesus was going to get in the way of that. That's what I was convinced. And so again, until I was 16, I read his letter I thought it was kind, and I put it on the shelf, and I left it there where it belonged, collecting dust. It's touching that the God of heaven and earth would make such an incredible offer to us. It's even profound and a little bit surprising that he would seal that offer with his blood. But like Onegin, many of us are convinced that we'd be happier without him. This is the thing I want you to see. If Jesus was who he said he was, if he died on the cross and if he rose again three days later and if he ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, then one day, years down the road, we're going to be at the party of his second coming. And we're going to see him face to face in all of his beauty and all of his splendor and all of his majesty And on that day, we will have wished we had received his offer. Here's the problem. Maybe this is the problem that some of you are asking today. How could we possibly know for certain that he was who he said he was? I mean, how could we be so convinced that one day... Maybe years down the road, maybe today, but one day in the future, he's going to come back full of glory and we're going to have happiness in the presence of that glory so we can trade this world for the next one. How can we possibly be certain of that? And so certain that we are 
gladly and, and willfully and joyfully giving up the pleasures of this age. So much so that when he says generosity instead of greed, we're like, okay, king, done. Purity over promiscuity, okay, done. The cross instead of my own personal comfort, wherever you lead, I'm going to follow. Paul says some crazy stuff in his epistles. One of the things that he says that's shocking and profound and amazing because it's true. He says that suffering in this life is heavy and it's burdensome. And, and in his letter to the Corinthians, one of them, he, he talked about at the very beginning, he said it's so heavy that he despaired of life. But then later on in that same letter, he says, but I want you to know something. This suffering, as heavy as it is, in comparison to the weight of glory and the life that's to come, is like a feather on my back. That's certainty. And I would argue that's the problem. Certainty of the future changes everything about how we live in the present. But how in the world are we supposed to be certain of the future? I've got good news for you. The book of Acts was written so that we could be convinced. You probably don't remember by now, but a couple of months ago when we opened the book of Acts for the first time, I told you that this book was written by a doctor named Luke. And the reason that Luke wrote this book was so that his friend and patron, a guy named Theophilus, would be certain that Jesus was who he said he was, that he did what he had heard he had done, and that he could stake his life on him. Look at the, the, the thesis statement of Acts with me. It's actually in Luke, which is the first volume. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all of these things closely for some time past, to write a detailed account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that, this is the purpose of the book, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Guys, the book of Acts is so much more than a story about the early church. The book of Acts is meant to be a detailed account of eyewitness testimony that's so compelling and so convincing that we might have certainty about the things that we've heard. So much certainty that it changes everything about how we live here and now. Jesus was who he said he was. That's the point of the book of Acts. He actually is Yahweh incarnate. He actually is the high king of heaven and earth, the creator and sustainer of the universe and the savior of the world. And even though the first time he came, he wasn't that attractive. That's how the prophets describe him. He was attractive to none. The first time he came, not that many people were into him. When he comes back again in all of his glory, we just sang it, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord. The book of Acts was written to give us certainty of that day. And I say all of that as an introduction because some passages in the book of Acts are more emphatic than others in proving this. And Acts chapter five is one of those emphatic proofs that is written to give us certainty. Let me just give you Acts five in a nutshell because we're only gonna look at a little bit of it today and you need to know the context. Acts five starts with this terrifying act. We saw it last week. 
Ananias and Sapphira are killed on the spot for taking God's holiness for granted, assuming that they could deceive the Holy Spirit. Then it moves on to signs and wonders being done through the apostles, so much so that everyone is afraid to get close to the apostles because so much power is oozing out of them. They think that, man, if if the shadow of the apostle touches the sick, the sick are getting healed, and nobody dares get close to the apostles. But then it says, but people are joining them day after day. So that's going on. As that's happening, the Pharisees get jealous because the Pharisees are the gurus and they're the religious leaders and they hold hold the keys to the kingdom and they've lost their place. And so they get jealous and they tell the apostles to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. They've just killed Jesus, so it makes them look bad, right? Now they throw them into prison. But then once the apostles get into prison, what happens right before our text is God sends an angel and miraculously frees the apostles from prison. And the angel says, okay, now that you're free, go right back to preaching in the name of Jesus. So they go right back to Solomon's portico. They start preaching in the name of Jesus again. And now the Pharisees are enraged. They're ticked. Rather than being blown away by the signs and wonders, rather than falling on their faces in repentance after this miraculous escape, because you would think that they would do that, they're enraged and they want to kill the apostles. But then where our story picks up, This guy named Gamaliel stands up and he stops the Sanhedrin from killing the apostles. And this is the part of the story that I find the most compelling. Because Gamaliel was the most respected scholar and teacher in all of Jerusalem. His grandfather was Hillel, and he had basically started this entire school, and Gamaliel was going to inherit that. And he is respected by everyone, so when he stands up and speaks, everyone listens. He's actually the Apostle Paul's mentor and teacher. We find out later on that when Paul is going through his list of accomplishments, and he's talking about how Jewish he was. If you've read the letter to the Philippians, you know he's like, he's talking about all of his credentials. One of his credentials was that Gamaliel was his teacher. That gave him clout. But this is the thing about Gamaliel. Gamaliel wasn't just a scholar. Gamaliel was what I would call an honest skeptic. He was an honest skeptic. He's not full of envy like the rest of the Sanhedrin. He is full of curiosity. He's not motivated by selfish ambition. He genuinely cared about the truth. He's not the kind of guy who's blinded by his own rage. He's the kind of guy who's studying and investigating and researching to see if everything adds up. He's an honest skeptic. So he's not about to pick up some rocks and execute these men because he wants to see how it all plays out. What if these men are telling the truth? What if they really are from God? And more more importantly, what if Jesus, the guy that we just hung up on the cross, was actually our Christ, Messiah? Guys, If you are an honest skeptic in the room today, I am so glad you're here. Acts 5 was written for you. If you're a believer and you're just struggling with some doubts today, Acts 5 was written for you too. If you are on the fence about whether or not Jesus is worthy of your loyalty, even when loyalty means suffering for his name, Acts 5 is for you. 
The goal of this book, and specifically this chapter, is that your skepticism would be replaced with certainty. So that's what I've been praying for you all week. That your doubts would be replaced with a defiant hope. And I think that this chapter accomplishes that goal by showing us two really important things. These are the two things I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you Jesus. And we're going to go. You ready? Two reasons. No, no, no. Hold on. Sorry. Are you, are you ready? Okay, good. All right. Two reasons we can be convinced that Jesus was who he said he was. And as a result, we can follow him with confidence and conviction that one day we will see him face to face in all of his glory. First, we can be convinced because the movement of Christ didn't die with the person of Christ. Look back at verse 35. And he said to the men of Israel, take care, this is Gamaliel talking, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were dispersed as well. So, in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And you might even be found opposing God. In other words, we've seen guys like Jesus before who claim to be Messiah. Theudas is an interesting story, really fascinating. He thought that he had the power of Moses, and he was convinced that if he had his staff, he could go to water, and he could part water with his staff. And so he got 400 people to follow him, and he was going to make an insurrection against Rome, wage war against them. And what he did was he said, guys, let's go to the Jordan River. I got this power in my staff. We'll, We'll lure the Romans to the Jordan River, and then we'll part the river like Moses did the Dead Sea. We'll cross the river, and then when the Romans try to follow us, I'll do it again, and the waters will crash in on them. That's Theudas, okay? So they go to the Jordan River. He gets his stick out. He sees the Romans coming. He taps the stick a couple of times, saps the water a couple of times with his stick. Nothing happens. They all get killed, and those who don't run away. Everyone who followed him dispersed, the movement came to nothing. That's the story of the Messiah, Theudas. And then after him, Judas the Galilean shows up and he tries to do the same thing. Again, he's convinced he's the Messiah. There's a census going on. The census has been, um, I guess, sanctioned by one of the Roman aristocrats who's trying to tax the people. And so Judas the Galilean is not having that. He raises up some men, convinces them that he's also Braveheart Messiah, and he's going to wage war against Rome, and they follow him. And again, he dies, and all of them are scattered too. The movement comes to nothing. Guys, when you see your leader die in disgrace, what do you think that does to your motivation and your confidence and your hope? All of your faith dies with him. All of your motivation dies with him. The movement fizzles out every single time. And you go back to whatever it was you were doing before you met the guy who thought he could part the waters with his stick. 
back to reality. What makes Jesus different from every so-called Messiah was the fact that when he was killed, guess what didn't happen? His movement didn't die. It lived on. He had become a spectacle. He had been condemned as a criminal. He had been crucified as a common slave. He had been mocked and stripped and beaten and flogged until the text says he was unrecognizable as a human man. Since he had claimed to be the king of the Jews, the, the guards dug a crown of thorns into his skull and then they draped a purple robe around him just so that they could mock him as king. And then they took him up to the Bema seat and they told him to sit down and then they mocked him some more and they said, judge us, O king. Bleeding, gushing. So they're making fun of him. He's a spectacle. Then they parade him through the streets with the cross on his back. He's stumbling. They're laughing. He can't carry it. Someone has to carry it for him. And all of this was to be a warning to everyone who saw him. Don't you dare step out of line. Don't you dare claim to be someone that you're not. Don't you dare claim to be God himself. Don't you lead people astray. It ends on Golgotha. It ends on a cross. It ends in disgrace. So Jesus is humiliated and he's tortured and eventually he is killed. If anything would have demoralized his followers, if anything would have totally diffused the movement, it would have been the spectacle of his torture and death. And yet, while his death was common, and while his torture was common, and while his spectacle was common, because if you know anything about Rome, everyone was getting crucified in Rome. His legacy was everything but common. Guys, did you know that at the time of Jesus' death, he had maybe like just at 100 followers? That's not a super successful ministry. Three and a half years, 100 followers. Not, not great, but get this, 53 days after his execution, he's got over 3,000 followers. You remember 53 days after his execution is Pentecost and Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 are added? What's that all about? Like usually the messiahs go from 400 to zero, not 100 to 3,000. What's going on? And something seems different here than the guys who came before him. By the end of the first century, historians estimate that there were about 10,000 Christians living in the Roman Empire, which made up about 0.017% of the population. It's, it's, it's slow, it's a grind, but it's definitely not fizzling out, it's, it's growing. I think I need to reverse this. It's definitely not fizzling out, it's growing. I got you, Luke, where are you, man? Luke's helping me out with my, my motions. I forget that you see the mirror, okay? The movement's growing. But check this out. By the year 200, the number has gone from 10,000 to 200,000. And then by the year 250, so 50 years later, it has gone from 200,000 to over a million. And then 50 years after that, it's gone from a little over a million to just over 6 million people. What? 
Rather than fizzling out and dying, the message of Christ and the movement of Christ spread like a wildfire, took over the entire Roman Empire against all odds in the face of all kinds of persecution, so much so that the legacy of Rome to this day is Christ and his church. You can't go to Rome without seeing Jesus everywhere. Today, 2,000 years after his death, over 2 billion people around the world claim him as Lord and Messiah. Gamaliel is right. If Jesus was just another guy, his movement would eventually die with him. But if he was God, then nothing would be able to stop it. So the first reason we can be certain of everything that we have heard about Jesus is that his movement could not be stopped back then, and it has not been stopped to this day. The second thing that we need to see, we can be convinced because the messengers of Christ didn't cower in the face of persecution. Look back at verse 27. And when they brought them in, they sat them before the council. This is a Sanhedrin, the most powerful people in the city. And the high priest questioned them, the same guy who condemned Jesus to death, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Peter's like, yes, you're absolutely right. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. Circle that word leader. We're coming back to it. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Guys, that's courage. And I would say that that's the kind of courage that comes from certainty that Jesus was actually the son of God. The reason that the apostles were so bold and so courageous in the face of persecution was not because of what they had seen Jesus do for three and a half years before his death. I mean, you would think that that would be enough, but it wasn't. The reason that they were so bold and courageous in the face of persecution was because of what they had seen Jesus do three days after his crucifixion. Remember on the night of his death, they did what every other follower of every other Messiah had ever done before them. It didn't matter that he had said a lot of cool things and taught the scriptures better than anyone they had ever heard. It didn't matter that he made food out of nothing and fed the multitudes with it. It didn't matter that he had done all kinds of signs and wonders. It didn't matter that he had calmed storms with the word, that he had walked on water and cast out demons and raised the dead. It didn't matter that Peter, James, and John saw his transfigured body and glory on Mount Hermon. Every single one of those apostles ran away like babies on the night of his arrest. Babies can't run. Cowards. When Jesus was crucified, they all scattered. Just like Theudas and his 400 and just like Judas of Galilee and his ragtag band of insurrectionists. They were not bold. They weren't courageous because of what they had seen him do before his death. They were bold and courageous because of what they had seen him do after his death. The greatest proof that Jesus was who he said he was is his resurrection. And the greatest proof of his resurrection is the fact that these men went from acting like scaredy cats to living like lions. 
And so now they're standing before the Sanhedrin, most powerful men in Jerusalem, same men that condemned Jesus to die, and they're saying, we must obey God rather than men because of what we've seen. This man you killed, God has raised him from the dead. God has exalted him in heaven. He is our leader. He is our prince. He is our savior. We have seen this with our own eyes. Do what you want. We can't stop talking about him. And so look what happens next. Verse 40. When they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every single day in the temple, not in hiding, not in secret, right under the nose of the high priest, every single day, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. Guys, I don't know about you, but for me, that's really compelling. When I was a kid, my family lived in a house right on the corner of our street, and our street bumped up on this major artery in Cary called Cary Parkway. Now, for Charlotte, this is nothing. This is like an old country road, okay? Every time I go home, I'm like, where are all the people? Like, where are all the cars? But for Cary, this is like the busiest road you can get. It's two lanes going this way, and it's two lanes going this way, okay? And our house was right there. And so we were like 12, 13, me and my twin and my friends in our neighborhood. We were daredevils, and we were pranksters, and we loved doing crazy stuff on Cary Parkway. For example, we would play this game where we would go out in the middle of the road, in the middle of the highway, and we would time each other. We would sit down in the middle of the highway. And, and then we would see, whenever we would see a car coming, we would see how fast we could get up and sprint off to the median. And then we'd wave at the car. And this is why women live longer than men, by the way. Okay. Um, and uh, I'll never forget one time we were playing this game, and, and the car that was coming over the horizon was a cop. <laughs> and so we, we jump up as fast as we can, and we get to the median, and, and he spins around so fast. And I don't remember how the story ends. So I guess we got away. Um, I, I don't know what happened after that, but we were always doing stupid stuff on Cary Parkway. So, so one day my friends and I thought it'd be hilarious. There were these big bushes at the top of a, a, of a pretty steep hill and my, my house is up there and then there was a sidewalk and then there was Cary Park. We were like, what if we hide behind these bushes and we, we get a bunch of mud balls and we just like lob them at cars as they're driving by? 12, 13-year-old, I, I know, I know. So, one of the dumbest things I'd ever done up until that point. Um, okay. Um, now, this is like, this is the best idea. It's going to be so fun. And so we're just lobbing these mud grenades over the bushes. And we don't know if we're hitting anything until we heard a boom and a And this car turned right into our street and pulled right up into our driveway. And we were like, we're dead. And so we booked it into the woods, and we hid behind the trees, and we could see at our front yard that my dad was out washing his car, and this guy pulls in, and he is not happy, of course. My dad, though, has no idea what's going on. And so this guy's yelling at my dad, and my dad's just taking it, like, I'm sorry, I don't know what you're talking about, and... I don't even know where the boys are. I think they're down the street. I don't know. And eventually the guy leaves, and we're like, we made it. We, we survived. And um, so we come out of hiding. We come out of the woods and act, trying to act cool, 
you know, play it cool. Let's, let's just, like, play basketball, and we'll pretend like nothing has happened. So we're playing basketball. My dad comes up to me, and, he, and to all three of us, and, and he's like, hey, uh, there's a guy that just came, yada, 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 and he starts interrogating us. And, um, and, and, and we are like, I have no idea. I, I don't know. This, we, we acted shocked and horrified. How could anyone do that? <laughs> That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, you know? And, and my dad just kind of nodded his head, and we went on with our day, and we're like, oh, my gosh, we got away with it. Dodged the bullet. Um, the thing is, he, he didn't believe us. And um, in reality, he wasn't letting us off the hook. He was just waiting for the right time to split us up so that he could talk to us one-on-one. And so later that night, that's exactly what happened. And we crumbled like that, okay? The threat of juvenile hall does it every single time. Just the threat of it. This is what typically happens when you're telling a lie. You might be able to last for a little while, especially if you're with your buddies and you have the same story and you're like looking at each other and you're like, yeah, 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 what he said, yeah, that's it. You're winking at each other the whole time and nudging each other and all of that. You might be able to keep it up when you're with your group, but sooner or later, one of two things is going to happen. You're either going to mix up your story, get the details wrong, and <laughs> your conspirator saying something over here, and you're saying something over here, and then you, you clash and you're found out, or you're going to fess up to the truth because the threat of consequence is too much to bear, which is what we did in our case. Now, here's the thing. The apostles did neither of those things. Um, not only did they never get their stories wrong, even when they were removed by time and geographical location and on and on it went, not only did they not get their stories wrong, but they dug their feet in, not just when they were threatened with consequences, but when they were getting beaten to a pulp. Why? If they knew they were lying, why do you get beaten to a pulp for that? They dug their feet and they doubled down on their story. Even when they are almost killed, they don't give in. In fact, they leave the whole thing full of joy, ready to get back at it. To me, that's compelling. I can't remember who the historian was who put it, but he said, I believe witnesses who have their necks cut. Like, I believe people who are telling the truth even when it means death. You see, for these men, Jesus wasn't just a man. Jesus was their risen leader and savior. And I told you I was going back to that word, so let's look at it now. Peter uses this word for leader, and it is so profound. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. That Greek word for leader is archegos. And it could also be translated prince. It could be translated captain, champion, author. There are so many English words that we could use to try to translate this word because we don't have an English word for it. It's too rich in the Greek. And so we've got to have a lot of different words that try to capture it. It's used twice in the book of Hebrews to talk about Jesus. Look at him with me. For example, Hebrews 2.10. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, the prince, the leader of their salvation, the champion of their salvation, perfect through suffering. Then look at Hebrews 12. Look to Jesus, the captain and the perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In Greek literature, this word archegos is, is used more often than not for the heroes in Greek mythology. And if you look at all the Greek mythology outside of Scripture, which is where we, we learn a lot about the Greek languages from outside the Greek New Testament, the person that this word was used to describe more than anyone else was Hercules. He was their Arhegos. He was their hero, their champion. We don't have an English word that captures its weight, but Peter is saying Jesus is our hero. Jesus is our captain. Jesus is our champion. He is our prince. And so because of that, we must obey him instead of you. This is so important, and if you hear anything I say today, hear this. This is so important because it shows us not only what the apostles believed about Jesus, but it shows us why they had so much joy when they suffered for him. Pay attention to this. Jesus wasn't just their hero or their champion or their prince Jesus' heroism was demonstrated by the fact that he suffered persecution, that he endured the cross, that he despised the shame for them so that they could be forgiven. And so when they suffered for his name, they were following in his footsteps of heroism. He was the first, and they're following in his train. And so as they followed in his footsteps, they experienced this unique and special and vital, and I would say supernatural, spirit-fueled intimacy and fellowship with him that they had not known before. They experienced a joy that they had not known before. They had experienced a glory and a power that they had not known before. This is why Jesus told him in Matthew, blessed are you when those persecute you. Happy are you when others persecute you because you will be, what? Oh, you will be blessed. You will be rewarded. Yours will be the kingdom. Not only because of the reward that they would receive in heaven, but because of this existential, supernatural joy that they would receive in the moment. You want joy in Christ? Of course you do. And there are kinds of joy that we get this side of heaven that are transcendent. And they're amazing. And they are, like the psalmist said, better than life. But this is a unique joy that you only get when you are suffering for him. Because suffering for Jesus always means suffering with Jesus. Later on, Paul calls this the fellowship of suffering. Now get this. There's a Romanian pastor named Richard Wormbrand. I've talked about him before. Um, he, wrote, he wrote about his own experience of this when he was in the Romanian prison under the communist reign in, in Romania and Soviet Union at the time. He went through all kinds of brutality, all kinds of torment while he was in prison, including months in solitary confinement and a tiny little cell. No light, no heat, barely any food, no one to talk to, and worst of all, no hope of ever getting out. That's Richard Wormbrand. And yet, to his amazement, what he writes in his book, Torture for Christ, which I highly recommend, it's his autobiography, 
He says, during all of that, and especially in those moments of solitary confinement, he experienced a joy that he had never experienced before in his life. So much so that there were times when he would actually stand up in his little cell, weakened, hardly able to walk, but he would dance in euphoria, confident that Christ was dancing with him. Eventually, he was released from prison and he was sent home. And as he left prison, he looked like a scarecrow. His teeth had rotted out. He was in really bad shape. And he's on his way back home to be with his wife. And he sees a peasant woman with a little basket of strawberries. And she offers him a strawberry. And he takes it. And right before he eats it, he says, no, I'm not going to eat this. I'm going to fast. And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) You've been fasting for a long time in prison. And now you're going to fast some more. And he's like, yes, I'm going to fast. And he goes home to his wife. And he's like, listen, i got to tell you about the joy that I experienced in that prison. I've never experienced anything like it on the outside. So we need to pray and we need to fast in memoriam, in gratitude for what God gave me there. And to make a request that we can experience it out here as well. It's a unique, special, supernatural experience. That's what the apostles were experiencing for the first time as they were being flogged for the name. They were following in the footsteps of their leader. Tom Holland, who's a a brilliant author, historian, uh, recounted another story of this kind um, of fellowship with Christ and joy in the midst of suffering in his book, Dominion, which I'm trying to read right now. It's it's long. It's taken me a really long time. Um, But it's a story of this slave girl named um, Blandina, And Blandina lived in Lyon in 177 AD. I didn't know this until I read it, but Lyon in 177 AD was one of the most terrifying places on the planet if you were a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ. Um, It was like North Korea before North Korea. Thugs roamed the streets hunting for Christians wherever they could find them. Whenever they did find them, they would drag them, no matter if they were male or female, young or old, they would drag them through a sea of fists and stones to the center of the city where they would throw them into a cage and the governor would judge them. And some of them were sentenced to be lynched on the spot in the center of the city. And some of them were sentenced to die in the arena, to be eaten by wild animals. And this slave girl, Blandina, was one of those young girls that was sent to the arena. Look at how Holland tells her story. Every torture inflicted on her Every torment she fearlessly endured. The radiance of her heroism had put even her fellow martyrs in the shade. Irenaeus described it like this in the arena. So it was reported to the churches in Asia, Blandina's broken body had seemed transfigured. Her fellow martyrs in the midst of their own agonies had looked upon their sister and seen in her person the one who was crucified for them. Holland concludes it like this. This was the assurance that steeled a martyr for death. The willingness of Christians to embrace excruciating tortures, which to those who sentenced them could only appear as lunacy, was founded on an awesome conviction that their Savior was by their side. More than the temples and the fields for which the antique heroes of Rome had been willing to sacrifice themselves, Christ's presence was something real. And he was there in the arena as once he had been nailed to the cross. Guys, 
the apostles had the same kind of conviction. And after their flogging, they experienced what they had always believed, that Christ would be with them even as they were sent as lambs to the slaughter. And so they rejoiced. Not only had they suffered for Christ, but they had suffered with Christ. Guys, when I read this story, I look at the apostles and I'm like, man, they're heroes. Like, I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could stand in front of the most powerful people in our country and they tell me, listen, if you keep preaching Jesus, you're losing everything. If you keep preaching Jesus, you're losing your family, you're losing your job, you're losing your money, you're losing your security, and eventually you're going to lose your life. I don't know if I would be that heroic in that moment. I hope I would. But this is the thing that I need to see, and this is the thing that you need to see. The reason that those men were heroic was not because those men were special. The reason that those men were heroic was because their eyes were fixed on their hero who had gone before them. And he had endured the cross, and he had suffered persecution, and he had despised the shame for them. And if he had done it for them, he wouldn't call them to do it for him without going with them. That was their conviction. And so they went into it with boldness and they went into it with courage and they left with smiles on their faces because in the heat and in the fire and as they were getting beaten to a pulp, they found Christ. Day after day, from then on, they just kept going back to the temple. Never stopped preaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. We can be certain that everything we've heard about Jesus is true, and we can actually accept his offer of life even when it means death here and now because of the testimony of the eyewitnesses and the faithfulness of their ministry, even in the face of persecution. Can I tell you something amazing, and then I'm going to close. Gamaliel doesn't show up again in the New Testament. And we don't see him again. But Christian tradition tells us that Gamaliel eventually saw enough to believe. And he gave his life to Christ. Clement tells us that Peter and John, the two guys that he had threatened earlier, <laughs> the two guys who he had said, if you preach the name again, you're losing everything. Peter and John baptized him along with another Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And he served Christ faithfully, willingly, and joyfully until his death. He was an honest skeptic. He just wanted the truth. And he found it. The movement didn't die with Jesus. And the messengers couldn't be silenced, even if it meant that they would lose everything. Because Jesus was who he said he was. He was Yahweh incarnate. He was the high king of heaven and earth. He was the creator and sustainer of the universe. He still is all of those things, and he wants to be your savior. He came so that you could be forgiven of all of your sins and be brought back into a right relationship with the Father. And so you need to believe today. If you're an honest skeptic, maybe today is the day of your salvation like Gamaliel where you've seen enough and you've heard enough and you need to take the step 
If you're struggling with doubts today, look to him and find assurance. And if you're still on the fence about giving up your comfort for a cross, look to your hero who bore it for you. Find courage. He is our victorious prince. He is the champion and the founder of our faith. And so we follow him with joy. Amen. Would you stand with me?